Welcome. You're listening to Amplifier, raising voices against rising temperatures. We're a group of Emory students, alumni, and a professor passionate about bringing people together around the current climate crisis. We aim to equip listeners to accelerate climate action by providing accessible information, amplifying diverse voices, and highlighting the intersections of environmental issues. Join us this season as we explore the United Nations Conference of the Parties, or COP26, and discuss what we can expect from this year's negotiations. Honorable guests, distinguished delegates, ladies and gentlemen, our very long wait is over. It is with joy and enthusiasm that I officially welcome you to COP26. Welcome back to Amplifier. It's currently the end of week one of two at COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland site for the International Climate Negotiation Summit. You've no doubt seen or heard something about COP26 in recent weeks. There's been a lot of news coverage on these talks because pressure on diplomats is immense. Climate initiatives since COP21 have been insufficient so far in order to meet the emission goals that countries set six years ago at that conference. Further, scientists recently published a report stating that only 11 years remain for the world to take action in order to avoid the worst consequences of climate change. Criticism has been levied at COP, and as we've explored in previous episodes, rightfully so. Will delegates continue to burn carbon in order to gather and discuss emissions targets, only to fail to meet those targets? Will developed nations and indigenous peoples be granted equitable representation at COP, And is it ethical to still host COP when COVID vaccinations and thereby travel remain so inequitable? I'm Tyler Stern, and for the past seven days, well, I've been in Atlanta, Georgia. But Emmeline Laney, my colleague at Amplifier, has been attending COP26 and speaking to attendees about their perspectives on these questions and more. Hi, my name's Emmeline Laney, and I'm a medical student at Emory University who works in climate change and health equity. I'm speaking to you from Glasgow, Scotland, where I've spent the last week at COP26. While likely familiar to you from the news headlines at the very least, I would be remiss as a medical student to not, as we like to say, orient you. So COP stands for Conference of the Parties. This is the 26th annual and two-week-long meeting of diplomats and delegates to negotiate and pledge ambitious climate targets towards global decarbonization. My hope today, though, is to not give an overview of the negotiations, but rather a sense of what it's like to be here as an observer on the ground, the sounds, the voices, and most importantly, the people. So let's get started. Here we are in the Scottish event campus right next to the River Clyde in Glasgow. I've spent about an hour and a half uh, in line to get in between COVID testing requirements and security. 
There are two main zones to really outline the landscape. There's the green zone across the river and the blue zone where I am. The green zone is for the public, though tickets this year are limited and quickly went. The blue zone is the main part where delegates are present. That said, the blue zone is divided even further. Towards the back of the space, there are plenary rooms, and this is where the actual negotiations take place and world leaders give their speech. This space has really been closed this year to people like me due to COVID, so really only a select few are present. As I turn from these closed doors, I'm standing in this massive sunlit atrium. I met with a whole other world of buzzing people, and this is the pavilions. The pavilions are within an open space, and there are about a hundred booth-like entities representing countries from the U.S. to Indonesia to Brazil, groups of people such as the Indigenous People Pavilion, organizations, or even ideas like the Water or Health Pavilion, the Sustainable Development Goals, or the Methane Movement. And it is in this pavilion area where I will spend my week meeting and talking with people from around the world. So we are. I'll let you introduce yourself. This is Emmeline on this end, and today we have the privilege of interviewing Damilola Balogu from Nigeria, the founder and chief executive officer of the Youth Sustainable Development Network. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for being able to talk with us. It's really such a privilege. Um, I'd first, before we really jump into COP stuff, I'd love to learn a little bit about. Uh, a little bit more about you and what you do uh, and perhaps what you just shared, kind of the organizing you do back home. All right, so thank you very much. And it's also a, a good time being here with you. So basically, I am a social entrepreneur who is passionate about making social impact, especially putting youth at the forefront. And I'm also a lawyer licensed to practice in Nigeria. So it, it's it's... What I'm doing, which is the social impact, is something that I'm really passionate about. And it was based on this that I decided to found the Youth Sustainable Development Network, where the point of it is to put youth at the front of sustainable developments. And how do we do this? Not strictly just educating them, but also making them policy makers and also making them involved in bringing meaningful impact that would affect real-life action when it comes to youth and sustainable development. So... That's really what I do almost every day of my, of my time so far. And I'm looking forward to doing this throughout the rest of my life. Uh, I'd love to learn um, a little bit about really your, again, what of course brings you to COP, but if you have any specific aims of your own personal experience at COP. Okay. So my personal experience basically is, is, is to, of course, learn learn and and of course be able to see what my country agenda is Nigeria or country agenda is specifically because most times when we're back home we're, we're a bit far from the government so being here I've been able to also clearly understand some of the agenda they're pushing towards what the towards just transition and about just an hour ago right right today the president of my country declared um, trans transition a pledge to net zero by 2060 which, which to me is not, I, that's, I'll just keep comments because I feel 
Like it's 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 an agenda that is probably not going to be able to be held accountable for. I mean, it's still going to be me. It's still going to be the future generation yet unborn, which defeats the whole purpose of sustainable development, which is, of course, trying to live our lives and making sure that the next generation are able to live theirs without any form of threat or harm. So that's that. That's it. And so I'm clearly getting to understand and clearly getting to see how um, the, the whole concept of climate change and international law intersect. And, of course, that's, that's the only part for me, um, a personal experience I want to have. And I'm looking forward to more discussions and more persons generally. Uh, building off of that, why for you, uh, when you think about your colleagues, your friends, your family, uh, and, of course, the organization that you lead, why do you think it's important for them uh, to really care about what's going on in COP in Glasgow for these two weeks? Okay, so what I, what I think for, for them is because climate change generally, it, 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 it has no boundary. Mm. It has no boundary. I mean, we're seeing a clear effect today. COP or no COP, you care or you don't care, you're yet or you're not, you're, you're basically, you can be a victim of climate change. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's something, for example, in Nigeria now, before I came here, um, it rains without no warnings. It, it, it rains and then it floods everywhere. And it, it's, it's really just sad. So, I mean, talking from a personal experience, I, I, I was able to um, witness um, the effect of climate change primarily through a person who actually got, who a house got flooded. That was about three weeks ago before coming here. And maybe she's, she's not too clearly um, informed about this is what the cost is. But of course, no one really cares climate change really doesn't care if you know if you don't know it happens and it happens so basically they should just care about it in form of the fact that okay the basic thing to start doing disposing your waste properly i think that's the that's the no the very first start of course maybe education and then moving on to the next one action disposing your waste properly and then let's look in let's begin to look into aspect of recycling and then talking from the government aspects maybe just um, also look for other means to generate energy mm. that, that, that would ensure that the environment is free from harm. So family, friends, nation, everyone as a whole care about climate change because it's not no boundary and it can just make you homeless anytime soon you don't expect. Natasha Sood. I am a fourth-year medical student at Penn State. I'm doing a research year at the Global Consortium for Climate and Health Education this year. Um, but outside of med school, uh, I'm one of the founding uh, members and the current chair for Medical Students for a Sustainable Future. We are a group of 550 medical students across the country that are really concerned about the impacts of climate change on health on our health system and what that means for us as future providers working within these increasingly overwhelmed uh, systems. Um, And other than that, I'm from Michigan uh, and I now live in Pennsylvania. So I'm here with Dr. Markley Alexander and Dr. Maya Newman. Uh, Dr. Alexander uh, founded the organization called Sustain Our Abilities. And essentially, this organization uh, works with and tries to understand the impact of climate change on those living with disabilities and how they are disproportionately impact, impacted excuse me, in disaster settings. And so with that team, 
Here we are um, talking to individuals from other countries, uh, trying to build connections to expand the network of sustainabilities. This year is actually the first year in all of COP history, to our knowledge, that there has been a single dis event on the impacts of climate change on those living with disabilities. And um, while that's great, it wasn't one of the main focuses of the group. It's not even directly in this blue zone. Uh, just to describe where we are, we're sort of in this maze with all these organizations and countries here that have their booths describing um, what they're doing in the climate movement. And there's not a space for, for there's not a spot for those living with disabilities to have a voice in this blue zone, um, which is a little disappointing, but it's also an opportunity to continue to grow and and, and, and bring light to the disproportionate impact. I am curious to hear if you have any thoughts or what your thoughts would be to um, the reflections about the limitations or the criticism of COP, either be it that balance between um, setting goals and ambitious targets without the action, those who are able to ultimately access and be present uh, in the negotiations and much less within the other aspects of organization around the negotiations um, and whose voices are ultimately heard. Uh, I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts on that. Absolutely. So I think many share the sentiment where it's, it's that we're having these conversations, we're having these collaborations. And I, I think there's two ways that you can view this con conference. One is a skeptic, which I think I entered as, and one is the optimist. And as a skeptic, you're, you're saying, well, you know, we're having these discussions, but where is the accountability that the action is being taken? Because anybody at any time could back out, as we did earlier, a couple years ago. And, um, but with that, I think, like, we, we would have been in a much worse space, like, from the past COP, um, and if we hadn't had those conversations and if these negotiations hadn't taken place. So the progress is there, it's very small, and I think this year is different than any other COP, as is every year, because the, the stakes are higher, it's more unprecedented every time, and, and I can only hope that our leaders who are at the negotiation table can take that into account. It comes down to this. The people alive now are the generation to come will look at this conference and consider one thing. Did that number stop rising and start to drop as a result of commitments made here? There's every reason to believe that the answer can be yes. If working apart, we are force powerful enough to destabilize our planet, surely working together, we are powerful enough to save it. This is Emmeline. We are now in the pavilion part of COP where there's a bunch of people and I am here with a very amazing uh, college student from Drexel, but I will let her introduce herself. Um, hi everyone, my name is Alyssa Kemp. I'm a second year uh, environmental engineering student at Drexel University in Philadelphia. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd love to first start off like very uh, kind of pre-COP question of just kind of what you do at Drexel, what you're organizing or perspective around climate change or involvement with climate change looks like. 
Yeah, so I first got involved with climate change and climate action through taking a climate action class in my university. And then this past summer, I worked with a professor, Dr. Franco Montalto, on doing research with urban heat islands and kind of community development through a climate change and climate action lens. Bringing, like, our eyes are closing, we're moving back to, to Philadelphia, to Drexel. You're on campus, now in person this year. Uh, can you tell me uh, why you think your peers should care about this, this issue and care about specifically COP itself? Yeah, so I think they should care about climate change. Well, it affects everyone, but you can see it just in Philadelphia itself. As I said, the urban heat islands are a major problem in Philadelphia that disproportionately affects underrepresented minorities, as well as the flooding issues. The weather is getting warmer and wetter, and climate change is prevalent everywhere, but you can really see it in metropolitan areas. Uh, as for COP, COP is where hopefully action will take place this year and policies will go into effect that actually um, create change and create positive change towards a better climate, better biodiversity, better air quality. The other question that kind of builds off of that is um, naturally anytime we have some sort of big event like this, it can uh, invoke a lot of criticism and oftentimes rightly so. Uh, and that can be uh, from um, the amount of carbon emissions creating a certain event like this and bringing thousands of people from around the world or even the infrastructure that we're currently standing in uh, to even who gets a seat at the table, who gets a pass to COP. And I think that's been corroborated and supported by some of the protesting going on outside. Um, so I'd love to get your thoughts on that of kind of how you uh, what your sentiments are to those kinds of comments. Um, I guess another one being, you know, these events are really important, but uh, does action always follow? Not always. And so I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on that, either how you rationalize them or, um, yeah, what, what your general thoughts are on those comments. Yeah, so I I saw a poster that said hypocrisy, and I definitely agree with that just because the most affected people in areas are struggling to get here, uh, whether that be visas or the Pacific Islands, not wanting to come in case they want they don't want to bring COVID back to the islands. The people who are being most affected aren't having their voices heard here, and that's a very large issue um, with COP, I believe, is that, you know, the people that are being affected just don't have a platform or don't have a large enough platform here. So I ask to you, what must we say to our people living on the front line in the Caribbean, in Africa, in Latin America, in the Pacific, when both ambition and regrettably some of the needed faces at Glasgow are not present? What excuse? should we give for the failure? In the words of that Caribbean icon, Eddie Grant, will they mourn us on the front line? When will we, as world leaders across the world, address the pressing issues that are truly causing our people angst and worry, whether it is climate or whether it is vaccines? Simply put, when will leaders lead? And for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Two degrees, yes, SG, is a death sentence for the people of Antigua and Barbuda, for the people of the Maldives, 
for the people of Dominica and Fiji, for the people of Kenya and Mozambique, and yes, for the people of Samoa and Barbados. We do not want that dreaded death sentence. And we've come here today to say, try harder, try harder. I'm Amanda Gomez Lobo. I'm from the Netherlands, but I'm Brazilian. And um, I'm still a student, actually, but I'm working as well as a communication officer. I'm, a, I'm writing my thesis now, master's thesis. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about your week at COP so far. The good, the bad, whatever that might be. So I think I can explain it as mixed feelings. <laughs> um, there, I think I can best explain this through an example. So I was... I was at first invited to come to COP with my organization because there was uh, someone from Mozambique coming, Julio. He's 33 years old and because of a gas project that has been financed by a lot of countries, Total and um, let me, I forgot the name, the Italian one, but what matters is that there was this gas, gas project and they all were dislocated. They promised that they would get jobs, they would get more land and the fishers, but everybody needed to leave. It's a lot. It's like a hundred thousands of people. So he's part of the farmers union and he was supposed to speak at our side event. But we've only heard really late from COP that the side event was going through. So we needed to get his visa as fast as possible then. But um, in the end, when he got last Friday, he got to the um, capital, Maputo, all the way from the north. And he, need, he went all the way to the south of Mozambique to get there. And he didn't get his visa. It wasn't on time and you know why because it got on the wrong pile because they thought it was a normal business trip and not for the cop but what I want to say is and then later we tried to have his ticket and then the embassy pushed but then in the end he couldn't come so he didn't come and he went through all this emotional roller coaster because he has a Mozambican passport I can just come like this here because I have a Dutch passport and I think this injustice and this inequality that it's the, the example of that, that it's not inclusive you know I just feel very privileged to be able to be here to speak with so many people that were able to be, get here but he wasn't he was looking forward to it and that really made me sad. I was like so sad because I just realized and you know people need to almost beg please fund me you know please fund me give me some so they're super nice always thanking always happy and I'm just like ah, don't do that because it's not your fault you're in that situation and um I think that's the biggest feeling, but at the same time, right. in one day I've met people from Burkina Faso, Angola, uh, no, sorry, Nigeria, 
South Korea, Japan, Brazil as well. And speaking with them and especially hearing everything they do, yeah, that's very inspiring. For you, specifically as a youth member, what you feel is vital and essential about being a youth leader in this movement? Um, what is essential in being a youth leader at this movement? Was that a question? Um, or why do you think it's so important that youth are included within the, this discussion? I think because we, we still believe and uh, it even makes me emotional now. I don't know what's happening here. I think we still believe we, we are not cynical. We, we know what's possible. And, and I think this hope, uh, and that's it, stories. It all starts with stories. What is the story we tell one another? What do I stand for? Because of course I can act, but you start from the the thing you you create in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit. So, and I think that's the most powerful part of the youth and people. When you're older, you know you get all this trauma, all this baggage you go through. They just want to live their lives. Of course, they're doing their jobs, but we have that fire, you know. And I think that's what makes the youth powerful and and I was six years old and I came to the Netherlands and you know how conscious I was of everything that happened around me and I experienced it all you you cannot take you cannot just deny and think they are naive because it's not I it was real that feeling and it influences who I am today but at the same time it just shows how you know how yeah we think we feel <laughs> perhaps the fact that the people most affected by climate change are no longer some imagined future generation but young people alive today perhaps that will give us the impetus we need to rewrite our story to turn this tragedy into a triumph. I am conscious of your time, so I'll end with um, two brief questions. Uh, one, it, maybe it connects to the previous question. What gives you perseverance to keep moving forward despite all the obstacles that we face um, towards a climate-resilient uh, future? I think it's speaking with people that are equal, that think like you and have that energy that, that lets you be free, sets you free. What gives me hope? <laughs> I think what gives me hope is 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 is, um, um, is the fact that regardless, people are still pushing. So regardless of climate change impact and effects, we're still able to pull through for COP26 to have a discussion and have bring down world leaders to actually pledge and make sure that they're actually doing things. Again, what gives me hope 
is um, is the fact that um, young persons, especially now, are a lot more involved. And of course, half of the population in the world at large, and in Africa specifically, are largely youth. And so seeing youths pledging their voices to this and becoming advocates, becoming um, researchers, becoming infrastructure um, um, enthusiasts and development people. So it is something that really gives me hope that, okay, this is actually just the just cost. And of course, getting more persons to, to work with us and pushing this cost will really go a long way. I'd say community and collaboration um, through MS4SF, I think is a great example of this. The work in this space can be extremely daunting and overwhelming and can leave, it has left me with a lot of climate anxiety. But I think it's, it makes it so much better and doable when you have someone like yourself standing right next to me or advocating for the same thing, who's, who is, is working in the same space. And when we build community and do it together, that's where the hope is. And that's the only way that we're going to solve this crisis. Yeah, I think what gives me hope is the indigenous leaders and the indigenous communities. Um, they really have this mindset of we're not giving up, we're protecting our communities, we're protecting the biodiversity as best as we can. And that's really inspiring, and I think everyone should take up that mindset and do the best they can to protect the environment that they live in. If you, this is like a big picture, uh, dreaming, your imagination, if you were to envision what a world looks like, post-climate crisis. So after we've already led this incredible incredible transition and change, um, really in your words, led a just transition, uh, what does that look like for you in any shape or form that you, you care to share? Of course, yeah, I just had to close my eyes to answer that question. So actually, we had to imagine. imagine ourselves in the moment, so our eyes are closed. <laughs> okay, I think, I think that's not something I've really thought of. And it's really nice this question is coming up. And of course, I think it's a question that every person should be able to answer or every person should be have at the back of your mind because most times we just, okay, we want to care, we want to fight about this, we want to fight about this. But I'm having a clear vision of what the world actually looks like after we're able to achieve this goes a long way. Maybe working with the end in mind can actually push us to that. And so, yeah, what, what, what it is, the world after achieving all of this clearly looks to me is, of course... Um, Beautiful, beautiful in the sense that um, um, nature is at peace with us again, and then we, we, we are able to move freely, less of natural disaster, and then, um, yeah, I like flowers, so, yeah. It's a world where I immediately think, I immediately, immediately think of trees and their roots in the ground, how they communicate, how when one is sick, one takes care of the other. People are no longer starving, hopefully. People have access to clean water sources. Uh, children are no longer dying from air pollution because their lungs are being developed. Um, you know, there's no displacement of people due to natural disasters or um, other events that would cause disruptions to their daily lives. Uh, my first image is a lot of smiling faces. <laughs> you know, I think when we, we think of the climate crisis, when we, we have these talks and everything we hear the first thing we hear is the stories of the individuals that are suffering and you see the pain on their faces and it's heartbreaking and 
And those are often the people who are not at the table making the decisions. And our leaders have to elevate those voices. The time is now. There's really no time to waste time. Let's get this agenda on. I mean, there are several means to which climate change and climate action agenda can be pushed for. It doesn't matter what you do. If you're an advocate, you can advocate for this course. If you are a researcher, you can make research and, of course, um, give better advice to how this can work out. If you work in the infrastructure development space, make sure what infrastructure, whatever infrastructure you want to develop actually doesn't affect the climate. And so, generally, the time is now. Let's all just put this into action. Today is the first day in 27 years that there has been a day dedicated to you in this climate change process. Whilst that is good, that is 27 years too late. Some of us weren't even born when COP started and we're still here. We're still talking about 1.5 degrees. And what we need to see is radical climate action, putting the money where their mouth is and funding the radical green transition. You can really act to what you believe in and we can change the story. It's really not that hard. It's just you need to have, you need to have the will. I was quickly swept up by tens of thousands of people, drums, dancing, chants, banners spanning nearly every cause imaginable, from youth and health professionals and countries to non-governmental organizations, activist groups, union parties, and faith organizations, all coming together as a collective call for climate action. While I still have so much to process from this past week at COP26, one thing is clear. The power of the people, be they in these walls or on the streets or thousands of miles away. It is the people that bring the knowledge, the perseverance, the determination to not only realize the change needed for a decarbonized negative carbon world, but for a world that is fundamentally restructured based on equity. The question I'm left with as I uh, turn to grab my plane back to Atlanta is how to take this energy back to our local communities, wherever that may be. Join us next time as Tyler and I explore what this means for Atlanta and for Emory as a university to really be a steward and leader of this change. Thank you so much. Today's episode was written by Emmeline Leaney and Tyler Stern. Audio produced by Tyler Stern. Audio captured by Emmeline Laney. And additional audio was sourced from The Hill, CNBC International TV, and the UN Climate Change YouTube channel. The speeches you heard throughout the episode were from Executive Secretary Patricia Espinoza, Sir David Attenborough, and Prime Minister of Barbados Mia Motley. Also, the final question we asked our interviewees about visions of a future where we successfully solve the climate crisis was inspired by an episode called The Green New Dream of a podcast called Inherited. They assemble all kinds of stories and imagine climate futures, and it's just simply fantastic. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Music by Zola Berger-Schmitz, artwork by Tyler Stern.